worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, and a very good morning to you. It's just... uh, it's just a humid morning out there, but that temperature's down a little bit. Most folks around got at least some rain last night. Some folks got a driving rain. I mean, I was uh, headed home from work, and out in that little section between about Loop 410 and the Dominion heading out I-10, it's been years since I've seen rain that heavy. You can barely see one white line in front of the vehicle, and uh, I don't know. Good to know that it can still rain like that. Uh, most folks didn't get quite that intense of a storm. I think they got over two inches in about 40 minutes out that way. But uh, anyway, it's starting to feel a little bit more like fall a little bit cooler in the morning and uh some good rain coming down just a lot of things to a lot of things to make a person happy on a morning like this got some open lines starting the day off sundays we frequently start off with everything full but uh uh gonna talk to joyce uh, to start the show but uh if you want to get through early you know the number 210-599-5555 and i see no reason to wait any longer let's just get started good morning joyce Good morning, Bob. It's always nice to start off as number one at some point. <laughs> you're always number one, regardless of what position you're in on the phone lines. At least that's what Hannah and Maya and Maxwell tell me. Well, and good morning to them and all the rest of your little fuzzy friends. <laughs> yes, uh, ma'am. Yeah, I got some of that nice rain yesterday. I didn't think it was going to, and then it kind of surprised and popped up anyway and, and rained quite heavily here, so I yes. don't know how much. Yeah, you're out in that little corridor that was right underneath uh, the principal clouds, so I suspect you got probably got a couple of inches of rain, and that's enough to make everything in the landscape smile. Oh, yeah, and you know, yesterday, when, I don't know whether you were talking about it or were you talking about it with Howard, but you mentioned that the soiree dwarf finca that yes, you uh-huh. let it uh, get light green to yellow and whatever, well, I did the same thing, but mine wasn't on purpose. And I noticed that it was getting lighter and lighter and blooming, and the flowers were getting lighter colored and smaller and smaller. And really, it, it I let it get way too far before I just got down and gave it a good dose of has to grow. Uh-huh. And I mean, uh, 10 days later, the tips are turning green. The flower and color has intensified. It, it really shows up in that it plant. It really does. Well, I, I would not say say that we did it intentionally we we observed it happening and took action but uh this was not a planned experiment it was one that uh mother nature put upon us and uh uh it's just but it, it's fun sometimes to uh it, just to experiment with different things and we were very impressed we used the azomite and uh, has yeah. to is a great product but uh we have fed recently with has to grow and i mean they were still healthy and growing and blooming well but uh, the color just wasn't what we expected. But boy, that azomite turned it around in a in a hurry. And it, the the other interesting thing is with so 
many products and so many plants, when you have a yellowing situation like that, the yellow leaves don't change. They have to fall off and the plant replaces them with the nice green leaves. In this case, the yellow leaves actually started down at the base and became a full dark green color again without uh, without ever dropping a leaf. So it was a very interesting, unintended experiment, but certainly a learning experience. Well, with with the has to grow, the yellowing hasn't changed, but the new growth coming out is yeah. dark green. It's kind of, right. I'm going to cut it back because I'm going to do that, but it kind of surprised me in that regard. Now, I had talked to you about my crown of thorns, right. one of them yellowing, and uh, on that one, I gave it some has to grow, but I put also some uh, lava sand and green sand on it, mm-hmm. and it appears, but... I don't know. It's too soon to tell, and maybe not. It appears that the yellowing is is beginning to become a darker green where it well, was, you know, coloring. I don't know. I'm, I maybe I'm imagining that, or just <laughs> well, that's that's what you would expect with green sand. It's just my experience is this uh, azomite product is like I always say it's like green sand on steroids. Green sand has three or four. Uh, good micronutrients like iron and zinc that it is very, very high in. Azomite has like 95 different micronutrients, and green sand actually has more iron in it uh, than azomite does, but azomite is just more of a broad spectrum. So we've got a lot more experimenting to do to figure out how to use these things. And, of course, they're natural products that don't burn, that don't ever cause any problems. So just it, it's fun to learn. I don't care how old you are, how many experiments you've done in your life. It's always fun to learn something new oh absolutely you are correct in that and i plan on getting azomite i can hardly wait till i have the opportunity to get get there and get some but that hadn't happened yet but it will so well uh, i i hope i see you because i have something exciting to tell you about that's not really to discuss over the air so when you come look for me because a couple of fun things i'd like to share with you Oh, thank you. I certainly will do that. And uh, before, I want to ask a question. My main question, actually, that I call about is about a ficus tree. But I want to ask one other quick thing about Go right ahead. temperature-wise. Yeah. Beets and cauliflower seed, has it gotten cool enough? Or, or what temperature range am I looking for before I can plant my beet and cauliflower seed? You want to be out of the 90s, and it's looking like we are probably out of the 90s uh, or would just be touching 90. I think you're fine to plant them. Um, things I would definitely not plant. I wouldn't plant spinach yet, um, but I guess that's the only one I'd really put off. I think you could do all of your leafy greens except spinach, uh, cauliflower, broccoli, cabbage, chard. Uh, all of those should be okay to do now as well. Now, when I said beets, I I don't have enough sun or a garden space where I can actually grow good beets. But uh-huh. I'm crazy about the greens. I was I just going to say, enough for that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what I wanted to know is, I'm sure I can plant them closer than you would if you're expecting. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, what would you suggest in that regard? Well, what it, what is sold as beet seed in most cases, when you look at that little um, brown kind of rough thing, it's not actually an individual seed. That's a little capsule that probably has four seeds in it. So you can usually expect for that for every one of those you plant, you're actually going to have four little plants come up. So I would space my seeds maybe 
two inches apart, three inches apart at the most. You're exactly right. You can plant them much denser since you're going to be going for the greens. So uh, I'd, I'd say probably three inches would be about the spacing I would look for. Okay. I've heard that bull's blood is a good one for uh, top growth. And I just wonder, oh, yeah. do you have any other suggestions? Bull's blood is a very good one. Uh, the old Detroit dark red it has, you know, it's been <laughs> it's been grown for probably a hundred years, and it's still a good one. But uh, uh, bull's blood, uh, they to me, all beet greens taste about the same. That bull's blood is such an intensely colored root, but uh, you might. You might, if you've got room, try and experiment, but that would certainly give you good greens. I always like to plant, and it doesn't matter whether it's spinach or, or beets or anything else, I always like to plant at least two varieties because you never know when one variety is just going to have a bad year. And I don't care if it's the best plant in the garden this year. Next year might just be an off year for it because of weather or other factors we don't really understand. So uh, I definitely plant some bull's blood, but if you've got room, um, plant a little Chidori, plant a little Detroit Dark Red, plant a little Asgro Wonder. There, there are a lot of different good beets out there. Okay. Now, I'm aware that it was a compound seed, and yeah. I used to try to separate them and all that stuff. But if I'm planting <laughs> it for greens, would you just leave it as a... I as would a, just leave it as is. And, um, I, you know, if you can you can thin the little plants if you want them individually to get bigger as they come up, but I would tend to let the little plants get big and then pull out any of them that are too close together and just eat the whole plant instead of pulling off individual leaves. And then leave the rest as kind of a cut and come again and let it grow out that Exactly, way. exactly. Okay. okay, well, that takes care of that. My ficus, here's what I want to really know about. I have a ficus tree that's maybe four feet tall, four feet wide. Do you remember... Edith Sorge and the Bonsai Farm when they used oh, to. Oh, yeah. Live. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, we miss them terribly. Nobody has come close to doing what those folks did. Well, I used to go to the bonsai classes at the botanical center where they, uh-huh. and so I was big into that having, I, I did not pursue it and I was not good at it. But just by way of the fact that this ficus started out as a bonsai and then it became a small shrub and that's where it's going to continue. Uh-huh. But now as I say, it's about four by four. It's heavily leafed. It, it spends its time outside. Uh-huh. And so, uh, It's heavily leafed all the way from, oh, what, four inches above stem or soil level all the way to the top. And the major size is just growing out uh, limbs that have Uh grown from the center. So I could actually reduce this thing by, I know I understand the three stages that you've talked about when you're trying to do a major reduction. But I could actually cut this thing 50% and still have 50% of the leaves. The way oh, absolutely. And and okay. your your bonsai is going to, your ficus is going to drop half of its leaves when it comes inside for the winter anyway. So why not preemptively go through and select the parts of the plant that you would that you would not miss the leaves on? I think you're onto a great plan. I would I would get it done sometime between now and the time you're going to bring it inside and just you know selectively prune and twist and just shape it up any way you want to. I think your timing's perfect on it. 
Well, actually, I don't plan on putting it back into a, a bonsai. I'm going to leave it mm-hmm. as a small shrub. But here's the other problem associated with it. It was in an 8-inch, I guess, bulb plastic pot, one of the shorties, uh-huh. short little pot. And then I set that pot into maybe a 12-inch, whatever, I guess, uh, clay pot. So it went from growing into the plastic pot, into the clay pot, into the ground. Now, I took it out of the ground early spring, and it didn't blink. So it's it's only in the two pots now, but I really need to get it out of that kind of condition. So when I do this... I'm going to reduce, and the bonsai folks used to say reduce the top by the amount you reduce the root. I mean, that would be correct. Thing. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, I'm. I wonder. I'm going to do some major taking off because it's got to get out of this double pot stack right. pot stuff right. at some point. So I'm going to do that, which will reduce the root by quite a bit and the top, but. I figured now was probably about the best time. It's cooled off a little, mm-hmm. and it has to be done, and I have to take my chances. So I'm, I figured now was the yeah. time. What do you? Well, I I think it's an ideal time, and um, you don't have to now. Now the original pot that it was in was a shallow plastic pot, correct? It was, but then yep. it went into this eight-inch bulb pot, which sure. is about what four inches. Yeah, the the what I was going to tell you is you don't have to physically rip it out of that pot that it was originally in. You can take some heavy duty scissors and simply saw away, cut away as much of that smaller plastic pot as you like, and then you know fill to the appropriate point with the soil. There's no reason that you have to just massacre the root system trying to get out of that first pot. Just cut away. If you cut away sixty percent of that plastic pot and then replace that with soil, being careful not to bury it any deeper than it was, uh, that plant's going to go on growing, and you and I are going to be the only one that knows there's a mangled plastic pot beneath the surface, and so I I wouldn't feel like you have to really butcher up the root system trying to totally get it out of that original pot that it was in. I'd just basically leave it where it is, trim away anything that shows, and, uh, you know, cut away some of the sides so that the uh, plant can, you know, expand its roots outward, but uh, I see no reason to to do a hatchet job on it. Okay, okay, well, that sounds good. I can certainly do that with heavy things to to break that pot up. This one, I don't know what kind of ficus it is. They called it a banyan at the time. Yeah, and well, that's a that's a common name. Face. Yeah, that's oh, okay. that's a common name, and that usually is a name applied to uh, ficus nidita, n i d i t or n i t i d a. Um, and it's commonly called the banyan tree. Uh, you, uh, I've never been to Thailand in that area, but those are huge trees over in that area. If you drive around the bay, I think it's on Oahu in Hawaii, there are some huge banyan trees that were named for World War II figures there, and these trees must be, oh, 50 feet tall and, you know, trunks 24 inches across. I have seen those, but, uh, yes, it's, it, Ficus nidida is going to be its proper botanical name, but banyan tree is perfectly good common name for it. Well, this is the kind, and I don't know, maybe all ficus do that, that put out the air roots. It has put oh, yeah. out air roots from the top that wrap around the tree and all that yeah. kind of stuff. So. The nidida and the benjamina are the two that do that most, but even the rubber plants and practically all ficus may do that. Okay. Well, I've taken up far too much of your time, Bob. You've been generous and helpful, as you always are. I appreciate it very, very much. 
Thank well, you, you get out and have a wonderful weekend and a happy Labor Day, Joyce. It's uh, always good to hear your voice. Thank you Thank so much. You. Certainly. Goodbye. And goodbye. All right, let's do a break here, and then it'll be Clint and Chris and Paul. I get to talk to you about Fanix Nursery and Garden Center. Now, remember, Fanix will be closed tomorrow for Labor Day. So if you're getting that new Traeger pellet grill, get over and see them today. If you're stocking up on supplies, get over and see them today. If you're looking for beautiful plants, they've just gotten in uh, shipments of their, really the first big shipment of cool season plants. Plus, they still have a number of the warm season vegetables to plant as well. Lots of perennials that qualify for the Saws Water Saver Rebate Program. Lots of trees. They just got another batch of citrus in and they've still got a great selection of crepe myrtles over there all of course the organic materials we look for and compost and mulch and uh, non-toxic means of controlling everything from mosquitoes to aphids just a good day to go see fanix they're right over there on home green road right where they've been for about 85 years normally open seven days a week but they do close for the major holidays and uh, that would include labor day so get out and see them today or get out and see them tuesday point is just get out and see them if you want to check them out online, you can do that anytime at uh, Fanic, F-A-N-I-C-K, FanicNursery.com. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. We're going to talk to Clint and Chris and Paul and Dave, and Clint is up first. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. I meant to ask you yesterday, can I expect my celebrities to start fruiting again before the cold weather hits? When the temperatures, when the nighttime temperatures get back down in the middle to low 70s, yes, they should come back into bloom. I know you feed, and uh, if they have the minimum required amount of phosphorus, uh, no reason they shouldn't bloom, set fruit, and continue to grow right up until freezing weather. Up to freezing good weather. Now that we got, I got I actually finally got a little bit of rain and stuff. I uh, got the fertilizer down. I think you said that if you do it once a year, the fall is the best time. Yes, sir. Absolutely. And, and when you're going mean? with the organic material, it binds to the soil, so you don't lose one tiny bit of it. These synthetic fertilizers, you're still going to have 80% at least of it wash away, but the good organic stuff, you're going to get 100% of it. So even if the numbers on the bag are a little bit lower to start out, your plants are going to get a lot more out of it. And, yeah, I would consider the next 90 days to be the single most important and most efficient time of the year to fertilize. And what's the, why is fall better over the other time of years? Um, the main thing is that fertilizers have to be, shall we say, processed by the microbial life in the soil. They're not just instantly available to the plant. So the fall fertilizer that you put on is actually what's going to support the spring growth. If you wait till spring to feed, you're behind the curve. That fertilizer is not really going to kick in until early summer. And in our part of the world, the, our best most important growing season is from about february on you know through may or so that's when your plants are going to put on more growth than they do the rest of the year put together so when you feed in the fall um you're you're getting the plants ready they in effect have a chance to digest that material so they're ready just to explode into growth when the weather's right if you wait until spring to feed then you're way behind the curve that's waiting until you're already half starved before you get a meal this way you're getting a meal when you need it and uh, 
Uh, you're just preparing for spring is what you're doing when you feed in the fall. Plus, you're going to increase the winter hardiness. Uh, uh, feeding, you know, even almost immediately will begin to increase the sugar level in the sap, and that means that the plants are going to be more resistant to cold damage. So there are your two big deals. You're getting ready for spring growth, and you're protecting from winter's cold, and that's what makes fall best. Is the Fall Wars Armanac predicting a harsh winter this year? I am told, I have not gotten my copy yet, but I'm told that uh, the Farmer's Almanac is saying it will be a cold winter with perhaps some snow, so <laughs> I'm not going out on that limb. I, I spent my high school years in East Tennessee where we had weather prophets that looked at the wasps and looked at the you know, the badgers and everything else in the world and then made their forecast. I don't know how the Farmer's Almanac does it, but they're right about 80% of the time. So uh, just wise, I think we'll take some precautions again this winter. Now, I need your uh, thoughts on this. I got an idea of uh, tapping the sprinkler system with one of those siphon injectors to uh, distribute molasses through and utilize the sprinkler system. I'm not really wild about dragging the hose and time consuming. Sure. So I figured sure. I this. You think that'd be an all right deal? If you have the right injector. Um, the, the common cheap injectors work on a siphoning principle, and anything that puts any back pressure into the line will keep a siphoning proportioner from working. But the little piston-driven types, the dosatrons, the dosmatics, uh, there are many of them out there. Uh, that's a great way to do it, and just if you keep those things clean, they will work for you for years and years and years. But you've you've got to have the right injector to make that work, and if you do that, it's a great plan. I've seen this little one on YouTube. It's like a little bitty piece of plastic with a I think it's a venturi tube type design. Yeah, not going to work. And you stick one in, that won't work. That's not going to work. That's going to work on your hose, and. Um, if you if, anything that puts back pressure, we call it the coefficient of friction, uh, plus whatever you put on the end that increases the back pressure. Anything that slows down the water, so to speak, is going to stop the siphoning action. If you let's say you wanted to feed or you, you want to feed something 150 feet away, and you put three 50 foot hoses hooked together, you would take your that type of siphoning thing. You would not put it on the high and then have 150 feet of hose out there because coefficient of friction is too high. You would go out and put your, your little uh, siphoner between the last two sections of hose, and then it would work efficiently. But uh, you just have to remember that anything that puts back pressure on the hose is going to keep it from working. If you put a real powerful nozzle on the end of it, that will keep it from working. Um, anything, anything that backs up the water pressure stops the uh, stops the siphoning. And uh, those, they shouldn't cost you more than twenty twenty five dollars to get an actual injector, which I say, like I say, is, is piston driven. You'll see this little thing goes click. Click, 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 up, down, up, down, and it pays no attention to the water pressure. To get you a good one of those is going to set you back mm, somewhere between $150 and $500, depending on how fancy a one you want. But they will work at any water pressure, pretty low all the way up to very high. So um, you just you just have to choose your injector, and that, uh, that, that little siphoning system just is not going to work for what you want to do with it. Yeah, so who makes the $150 model? 
There is two companies I would look at. One of them is called Dosematic, D-O-S-E-M-A-T-I-C. The other one is called Dosetron, D-O-S-E-T-R-O-N. I'm sure there are many, many others, but those are the two that are sort of the standards of the nursery industry. And uh, we have one, and if you ever buy the nursery, happy to show you what it looks like. It's actually mounted on a you know two-wheel hand truck that's got a 10-gallon tank underneath it, and then the little unit sits up on top, and you simply hook an input hose and an output hose onto it, and uh, it works very simply, very efficiently. It's much more accurate, and uh, you can put out a much larger volume in a shorter period of time. But uh, if you want to look it, look it up, either look up Dosatron or Dosmatic, uh, and if you ever buy it this way, just you know, tell them tell them you want to see uh, our our injector system. And half the employees don't know how to use it. I keep trying to tell them, and it's just a little bit more work than they sometimes want to go into. But uh, I'd love to have you take a look at it and see how it works. We bought it all as one unit: the tank, the uh, uh, little two-wheel card, and the proportioner all in one. Um, as clever as you are, you could certainly make your own stand to put it on. It's not heavy. It's very small, very lightweight. But um, uh, either Dosmatic or Dostron, both of those are good good products. I've used them both and been pleased with both of them. And you can tap into the one-inch uh, supply line for the fresh water. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, if I were doing it, what I would do is I would tap into that one-inch line and uh, – I basically put a bypass valve. I put two T's in there, come up off of those, and then I put a you know a, a, a ball valve or something in between. And then on those two lines that came up, I put a ball valve on those and have it just so where you could screw the you know something onto. Uh, uh, well, actually, yeah, you, you'd only actually have to have one, but just so that you could you know turn off the the main line, turn on the line that goes to your proportioner. And uh, it would be very easy to do, and to switch from just plain sprinkling to using the proportioner would take you all of 20 seconds. Good deal. Okay, well, I appreciate your time. Uh, good question, Clint. Always enjoy talking to you. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you, Take sir. Care. You too. Bye. All right, got to get a break here, and we get to talk about Saws. And Saws wants to remind you, I know we got a good rain yesterday, but we are a long way from being recovered from this drought. And water conservation is very important. And Saws, of course, has uh, drought stage regulations, and you better follow them. I mean, these guys don't mess around. They'll write you a ticket, even if it's first-time offense sometimes, and then you get ticketed more than once, the fines go up and up and up. But don't do it just because you're afraid of a fine. Do it because it's the right thing to do. Water on your appropriate day, 7 to 11 in the morning or 7 to 11 in the evening, and that's going to give you all the water your landscape really needs. Remember, it's much more important to water thoroughly than it is to water very, very frequently. And um, gosh, all our grass is out there. Now, if you had a newly planted yard, you need to ask for some special consideration. But on an existing landscape, you know, the Sage 3 restrictions, all the restrictions are allowing you to use enough water to keep your landscape alive. So go to saws.org and check out uh, the Sage 3 drought restrictions. And we'll check out all the drought restrictions because we will move away from this, hopefully to a lesser restriction than to more. But uh, good rain starting to happen, so we're not going to have to watch these drought rules forever. But right now, you need to keep an eye on them because you want to keep your plants healthy, and you certainly don't want to be giving saws any more money than you're already doing so in the form of fines. Pay attention. Go to saws.org and learn more about the drought rules and learn how to water properly. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550. 
KXSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on this wonderful Sunday before Labor Day. Hope you're going to be able to not have to labor too much tomorrow. This is uh, oh, this is just a, a, a good holiday to celebrate. We kind of move out of the really hot weather. If you're a dove hunter, you know what this weekend means for sure. But uh, it's just going to be a great day to relax and enjoy. Hopefully you get to spend some time with your pets, your family, your plants. All those things are very good. Uh, Chris, Paul, Dave, and Bill. Chris is up first. Good morning. Yes, I heard it go ding. (laughs) That's the way it works. Yeah, thank you. That's the way it works, and then it gets louder. Uh, Three, actually, I have praises to do and a a weird thing to say. Number one, praise. I got the eco lawnmower and the other stuff from Uh Fanix. Yeah. Just because. I I decided I had that or the one you like still, but that one seems to have a little more stuff for the homeowner. As opposed well, to and it's also it's also lower price. Mine is, oh, uh, yeah. is and and I don't have the lot more. I have a lot of other steel lithium ion battery powered equipment. But uh, you made a good choice. You can you can mow at uh, six o'clock on Sunday morning without waking the neighbors up now. And that's what it was. Well, too dark now. But at at six forty five, when it's getting lighter, I was able to mow. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but not 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 from last night because we had an inch and a quarter of rain. Yes, in sir. Our location two eighty one and sixteen oh four which is good because all my water tanks that have been empty, not barrels, these are big tanks, yeah. are now at least half full. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, that's a great I got, thing I got to do. about 5,000 gallons of them that came off the roof on, on that side, and the other side filled up and overflowed, which is good. Here's an interesting thing. I'm looking at my oak trees. I'm getting some catlins out of them. Mm-hmm. Which is, I'm assuming, because the non-normal summer has stressed them, and now they're wanting to do a little something out. Well, it's but I it's that was interesting. Yeah, it's it's not a conscious thing, but anything that puts plants into you know a dormant or semi-dormant state, their normal thing when they break that dormancy is to bloom. And drought, uh, you know, most of the time it's cold weather that forces plants into dormancy, but drought will do the same. And you go over to parts of Africa where they have a distinct dry season and a distinct wet season, uh, moisture very definitely, you know, is, is what makes them come out of dormancy. And that's why, you know, your amaryllis, your uh, many of the different uh, euphorbias, that's why uh, they bloom at the times that they do. So not not surprising, unusual, but, you know, it's, uh, thank God, we don't have many summers as dry as this. So your oak tree is just breaking what was sort of an induced dormancy and thinking it's going to, you know, do a little reproducing. Now we'll see whether they actually make acorns or not. They did not make a lot of acorns this summer, so it'll be, as nature always is, interesting to continue to watch. Yeah, well, here's the interesting thing. I have a ton of acorns on the same tree uh-huh. out that that has that is starting to do the catlins, and it's like, huh? But I mean, I'm, I see a bunch of acorns on them, more oh, than yeah, normal. And I'm going, but that's this year. Last year was very few. Oh, yeah. Another praise. Southwest Middle Roofing did my roof. <laughs> And it's been very nice. <laughs> they are great people. They truly are great people. Yeah, and I want to give them another praise. And, of course, your place is wonderful. <coughs> Excuse me. That's all. Have a pleasant day to everybody. Oh, by the you... way, for Joyce, I love hearing her talk along with some of the other people. <laughs> she's, uh, she's a great lady. And um, 
Uh, wonderful, wonderful mommy to her pets and just a good, good person. So uh, it always, always makes me smile to hear her voice as well. So get out and have a great Labor Day, Chris, and we will move on and talk to Paul. Good morning, Paul. Hi, Paul. Is Paul there, Greg? Paul, are you there? I'm here. All right, sir. Good morning. I'm sorry. I, I, was, I was on my phone on my radio, and it didn't click. So I thought, <laughs> oh, here we go. Anyway, yes, sir. I, I want, let, let me start off by telling you I really appreciate your show. I enjoy listening well, to you every Sunday. It's I do. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for listening. It's a lot of fun. Uh, listen, my, I've got the oak trees, and I've got some huge oak trees, and I've assumed, I guess you know how you spell that, all these years that they were very healthy. Uh-huh. And I guess the drought, the drought kind of kicked everything over a little bit and talked to the arborist, and he said, show me a picture of the of the soil at, at the bottom of the, of the truck. Mm-hmm. Sure enough, it's they're, they're, they're buried. Right. And uh, th- these things have got to be 50 years old. And yeah. So yep. uh, they've, they've done very well to, to survive this long. My question to you is I've, I've started digging. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I'm going for an air spade like you talked about. But uh, <laughs> I've got down to where I've got like maybe six to nine inches of flare coming uh-huh. out. And You're deep enough. You're deep enough. Okay. Yeah, you probably want to you want to broaden it out because you don't want it to just fill right back in. But uh, if you're seeing the flare come out that much, wouldn't hurt to go a little further. But uh, that that is probably far enough. The the deal is, Paul, that a a woody plant, a woody shrub. Now this does not apply to true palms. Does not apply to cycads like sago palms. But the woody trees, whether it's an oak or an elm or a cypress or anything else, basically above the root flare, the cells are not waterproof. They don't have the lignans and superns and all the things in that basically let them stand having wet soil piled up against them. When you get down below the root flare, those roots are made uh, they're structured, so to speak, uh, evolved, however you want to put it, uh, to be in a wetter environment, and it does not hurt to have wet soil piled up against them. If we lived in a wet climate and that root flare was buried, you would see damage a lot more quickly than you do here in Texas, where dry is the norm and wet is the unusual. And this is why our trees sometimes survive uh, even when they are buried like that. But when you, when you have the root flare properly exposed, uh, it's thriving. It's just not surviving. So those trees will very much, uh, appreciate it. I, I've seen trees that, you know, that probably been buried for that long. And then what happens is the trunk slowly rots from the outside in. And once you have rotted through the phloem layer, which is what takes the nutrients from the leaves down to the roots, the roots just slowly start to starve. And then the whole tree just folds up and dies in a very short period of time. So, um, you don't want to wait until you see, you know, bad symptoms, uh, that's, you know, that it's something that should be taken care of more quickly, and you're doing that. So that tree should live for, you know, another hundred years and, and do even better. Uh, but you're, what, what you're doing by allowing just air circulation around the trunk, you're getting air circulation around the point that was designed to have air around it, and yet you're getting the moist soil around the part that's below 
that was designed to uh, not not have any problems with the moisture, to have the waterproofing layer, if you want to oversimplify it, that it has sort of waterproofing layer in the outer coating of the roots, which is what enables them to survive in that wet soil. So there, there's a good explanation for it. And here in Texas, in the dry part of Texas at least, uh, we do have a lot more leeway. Some trees survive a long time being buried, but I can tell you they start looking the day you get that soil pulled away. They start looking better. Well, that's great. That's great, Bob. Well, my I have like 300, 400 trees, so yeah. uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm just glancing at them. It looks like about 50% of them have got uh, something up around that that base. So now I'm talking about that airspace I hear you talking about. <laughs> I, I, I looked on Howard Garrett's video uh-huh. And uh, they ended up looking like they made toothpicks out of it, so I'm sure they were doing that just to be demonstrators. Sure. But uh, uh, I couldn't find an air spade. And I'm just curious, who who do you know that runs one? Um, most arborists, you know, have have one. I, I happen to use that or tree care more than any others, but most every arborist out there should have one. And I, and I, I've never really gone out to look to rent one, but, uh, I know they are available. They run off the same compressor that runs a jackhammer. It takes a lot of, uh, high volume air capacity to run an air spade, but, uh, um, my advice to you would probably be pay somebody to come uncover the first three or four trees, watch them. Um, you know, depending on insurance regulations, they may or may not be able to let you actually try the air spade yourself. But uh, it's it's my understanding that it was actually invented by the Army to uncover landmines without exploding them. So um, well. it's... It's something that a a capable person, um, and don't get me into the, into trouble saying a capable man, a capable man or woman who has some upper body strength can certainly use one um, without uh, you know. But but it would always just about anything that involves uh, living things. It's best to watch somebody else do it first before you try to do it yourself. But if I and and I got lots of oak trees, but mine are for the most part well exposed. But if I had 50 trees to do, I'd pay somebody and watch very carefully how they did the first handful of them, and then I would go out and rent the machine and do the rest of it myself. Unless I just won the lottery, in which case I'd let the other guys do it all. <laughs> but I haven't won the lottery. I guess I'm going to have to buy a ticket, though, if I'm going to have any chance of winning the lottery. But anyway, that that's how I would approach it. Okay. Well, Bob, I really appreciate your time. I don't want to take any more of it from you. Thank well, you then you get time. out and have a happy Labor Day, and I'll look forward to our next visit. Thanks for calling this morning. Okay, uh, let's take a quick break here. I get to talk about Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics. And uh, as, I, as we all know, this has been a very unusual summer. It's been a very tough summer on a lot of plants. We're seeing things, truly, we're seeing things from trees to soils. We're seeing things happen that we've just really never seen before. And if you're sitting out there scratching your head and looking at your landscape and saying, well, why does this plant look good and this one over here looks bad? Why does part of my yard look really good and the part of it's really suffering? Well, that's the kind of time that it might be nice to have an expert standing next to you to help explain what you're seeing 
studying and more importantly to tell you what can be done to correct the situation and that's what sam and his crew do sam is one of the well he's got over 30 years of experience diagnosing and correcting problems and uh, he does it all organically which means that i very much believe in what he does and uh, he's, he's just a very talented very great guy uh, we have a lot of people that, <laughs> that just sing his praises every time we see him. So if you're in a position where you would really like somebody to evaluate your landscape with you, he's a good guy to call. Go to GreenGrowOrganics.com, and you'll find all the information there. Now, he does some things. He's probably the leading expert in this part of Texas on compost tea, but he's not going to trim your trees or mow your yard. He's going to let you know what needs to be done, let you know what he can do, and let you know what you need to do yourselves. Take a look at the website. If it looks good to you call and set up a consultation be sure you understand any charges up front but uh just an awful lot of people out here really rely on sam sitterly and green grow organics south texas gardening with bob webster is on the air news talk 550 ktsa and fm 1071 all right, back to gardening. Uh, let's see, Greg, are we up to Dave? Is that who, who I'm going to talk to next? All right, Dave and then Bill, and then we move on down the list. Uh, a couple of open lines. Grab one if you like at 210-599-5555. And we say good morning, Dave. Good morning. Morning, sir. Listen, I have about uh, three kind of quick questions. but Okay. I, uh, I collect the uh, condensate of the air conditioners smart man a tub well yes sir it, here's my question that's basically distilled water uh-huh. so is it really a benefit to the plants if i use it to to water like roses things like that it's it is a it is a great water on the negative side it doesn't have all the minerals and things like that that uh, well water or tap water would on the positive side it doesn't have the chlorine and all the other things that the city water system probably puts in and yes it's it's excellent water now unless you have a huge huge air conditioning system uh, you're certainly going to be using plenty of other water as well. But no, that's some of the cleanest, best water. I tell you, you put out a, you fill the dog water bowl with uh, city water and then fill the water with, with the condensate water and see where the animals go. They know where the really good good water is. So yes, it's it's excellent for plants and uh, I wouldn't waste a drop of it. You're a smart man to collect it and use it. If you happen to have any kind of water features, any fountains or anything like that, it is it is the far better we use it here at the nursery we collect it and use it in our fountains and things because that way we don't get the calcium buildup and all the problems that we can have with san antonio's hard water so good water you use it uh, however you see fit i wouldn't necessarily drink it because uh you know who knows what's in that condensate pan underneath your air conditioner that's you're not going to have it at home but that's where legionnaire's disease originally started but um if you wanted to drink it i'd just run it through a uv filter and then it would be uh once again great water but basically other than drinking you use it for whatever you would normally use water for okay uh secondly uh i have an orchid um i've talked to you about this before it seems to be healthy we got some beautiful blooms off of it earlier this year um it's in a rather small container Mm -hmm. and it's putting out i guess 
roots all over the place. Uh, is, is that a good sign? I mean, I mean, oh, yeah. Is that where it's getting yeah. its water from? Re- I shouldn't be trying to trim those or anything like that. No, sir. Remember that in nature, that orchid would be clinging to the side of a tree or the side of a building. or They're, they're what we call epiphytes, and their native way to live is up above the ground level. And they've got those big old fleshy roots. The roots are covered with something called velamen that uh, enables them to absorb Water, they absorb nutrients just from dust and from detritus and things that collect on them. So that's just a sign of a very healthy plant. Uh, the time okay. that we repot orchids is when the potting medium, whatever it happens to be, when that begins to break down, then it's time to, uh, to replace that. But no, it is perfectly normal for those roots to go crawling all over the place, and that's a sign of a good, healthy plant. Well, what what is a sign that the medium is starting to break down? When it starts feeling spongy, when it stays wet for a longer period of time, uh, obviously you've been growing this one for a while and you know just how long it normally takes it to uh, for the medium to dry. If it seems to be holding water longer, it's probably beginning to break down. And I would never repot while it's in bloom or in bud because that'll sometimes cause the buds to drop because the bloom's not to last as long. But the best time, as long as the plant is healthy, the best time to repot as soon as it finishes that flowering cycle. And um, uh, so, yeah, you're just, you're doing a good job and you're looking at a good, healthy plant. Yeah, thanks. Now, this is the sad part. Um, last year, I, I talked to you. I'm trying to grow uh, birds of paradise from seeds. Uh-huh. So I'm collecting them now off the other plants, you know, when they get dark and so forth. But last year, I got to the phase where I put them in, the, uh, I put them in my refrigerator, and then I learned that because uh, from from your program that uh anyway refrigerators to keep from frosting up they <laughs> right. dehydrate everything yeah now this year so anyway when i took the seeds out and everything and scored them and planted let, let them me let me slow you down for just a second dave i've got to go to news i'm gonna get greg to put you back on hold and we'll finish this conversation as soon as we come back from news south texas gardening with bob webster is on the air talk to bob now 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening on this wonderful Sunday before Labor Day, the day that I hope all your laboring is voluntary and hope you're doing something fun. Nothing wrong with work. Oh, Malcolm Beck is the one that always said the only difference in work and play is the amount of pleasure you derive from it. So I know my work is uh, something that I really enjoy, so I guess I really don't work very much. And uh, I hope you will avoid laboring at anything that's not pleasurable to you tomorrow that's what labor day is all about we're visiting with dave about uh seeds and seed savings so let's go back and finish that conversation then we'll talk with uh bill and roger and woody but um so you you dehydrated your pride of barbados your uh, uh mexican bird of paradise seeds so they didn't sprout and grow well for you is that where we were yeah that's correct yeah uh, now uh, okay but this year I collect. I put them in the refrigerator, but I sealed them up in a glass container. That's exactly the way to do it. 
That's exactly okay. the way to do it. And when you get ready to germinate them, when you get ready to start your new plants, you can do a couple of things. You can either soak them in garret juice uh, probably for an hour or two, which really helps to kind of get the moisture going through that tough outer coating, or you can scarify them. You can scratch them lightly. You're not trying to sow a hole in the side of the seed, but uh, scratching them with anything from a fingernail file to a triangular file, I know one guy that on his Mount Laurel seeds, he actually turned on his grinding wheel and just touched them instantly against it. Don't have to go to that much work. But if you want to scrape them just lightly, you're not sawing a hole in it, you're just trying to break that waxy coating and then soak them, you'll get like 100% germination and usually be pretty quickly that they will sprout. And the time to do that, most of the time we're going to plant that seed probably in March. And uh, you'll have nice blooming-sized plants by the time the hot weather gets here. Great. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Well, it's always a pleasure to visit with you, Dave. I appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. All right. Uh, next in line is Bill. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Bob. Morning, I sir. Unre- I have two unrelated questions. First okay. has to do with the uh, issue in the house uh, with the drought. My wife enjoys planting outside, but the drought uh, had and limited water. We had very few plants, so she started gardening inside the house <laughs> well that works <laughs> which was great but the, the the one issue we had pop up is gnats uh-huh. is there some way to combat the gnats that are they're they're, they're involved they're, with all the house plants yeah, there, there are two ways to do it. Those are called fungus gnats, and they're living and breeding in the soil that those plants are growing in. Typically, that's a sign that she's watering too often and the soil staying a little too wet. And many times you will totally control the gnats just by letting the soil dry a little bit between, a little bit more between waterings. And that's actually what the plants prefer as well. So anybody who's got, got fungus gnat issues, you're probably watering a little more often than you need to. Now, if you want to go after them directly, the same bacteria that kills mosquito larvae, what we call BTI, Bacillus thuringiensis israeliensis, well, that's a mouthful. But uh, BTI that kills mosquito larvae will also kill the fungus gnat larvae. So you get one of the mosquito products like mosquito dunks or mosquito bits, soak a bit of that in water for a few hours and then use that water to water your plants. It won't work overnight because you're killing the larvae rather than killing the adults. But uh, BTI will totally wipe out your fungus gnat population probably be about a week before you stop seeing any of them so i would actually recommend doing both Uh, she still wants to water very thoroughly but probably needs to let that soil get a little drier between waterings which the plants are going to like better and the fungus gnats aren't going to like but then follow it up the bti and uh, you should never see a fungus gnat again okay great well there's she loves to water, so she waters nearly every day. <laughs> well, uh, you need to build her a greenhouse. <laughs> and then, well, yeah, there there are many good things to say about that. And uh, uh, for the for the money she might be spending at the mall shopping, you can build a pretty nice greenhouse and keep her busy there. I say that tongue in cheek, but there's a lot of truth to it. It's a great hobby, great great hobby. You bet. My, my other question has to do with the corn water tea application. Uh-huh. Uh, like we live out in the hill country and have a lot of mots, and uh-huh. we're, you know you might have five to ten to thirty trees in a mot. Do you have right. are, are they interconnected enough 
that you don't have to water all of them individually or or how what's the best way to do an application like that I would kind of circle the mott, um, and I would want to get some of the corn water tea into the trees all the way around the periphery of the mott. Maybe not necessarily every tree, but of course what you're doing with your corn water tea for this application, there are many other ways, other things to do with corn water tea, but you're stimulating the tree to activate its own system, which sort of serves as a... Um, Oh, its own form of an immune system. So mm-hmm. it it would be good uh, to do the outer outer perimeter of that circle would be a very good thing. If you were working with trees and you knew there was uh, oak wilt coming from the the north side, uh, moving toward it, I would really concentrate on the trees on the north side of that mott because those trees are interconnected uh, over a pretty long area. But uh, great question. No, I don't think you necessarily have to do every tree in the mott, but I, I would very definitely do the trees that are kind of the front line of defense, if that would be a good way to put it. Okay, you mentioned the north side. Is it direction important or way? No, I, I only I only mentioned that. Let's say it wouldn't make any difference if the neighbor on the east had oak wilt. I'd treat the east side. If the neighbor on the south uh, had had oak wilt issues, I'd start primarily with the trees on the south side of the mod. I I was just using that as an okay. example. Didn't and uh, hopefully you're in an area that you don't have a lot of oak wilt close to you. But well, we uh, have a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a scourge of the hill country. So I would do as much as you can. But again, I I do the perimeter. Uh, before I worried about trying to be sure I hit every tree. Okay, and the other question has to do with the same thing. I've got, <clears throat> I use a 275-gallon tote to mix yeah. my corn water tea. Uh-huh. About how much corn meal would you put in a uh, 275-gallon tote? Ooh, 275 gallons, I'd probably put five pounds. Oh, is that all? Okay, well, I yeah. was using like a 25-pound out of a bag or something like that. No, I. I it would still you, need to soak, soak overnight. Though. I would, I would very definitely let it soak overnight. So, yeah, I. It's it's like a lot of things. You're basically inoculating the water and then giving it a chance to grow some. So uh, you can use more. You're not going to hurt anything. I would say you know five pound bag would be the minimum I would do. Okay, great. I appreciate your help this morning. Well, it's always a pleasure. I appreciate the call, and uh, you get out and have a great day. You bet. Thank you. Thanks, Vail. Certainly. Goodbye. Uh, next up is going to be Roger. Good morning, Roger. Good morning. How are you today? I am off to a good start. It's actually a beautiful morning out there, a little bit cooler than it has been, and uh, nice overcast. There's a good deal of moisture from the rain yesterday afternoon. It's just a, it's just a pretty day. It certainly is. I have a question. Um, I want to plant uh, two elm trees on my uh, backyard, and uh, yes, you were talking to a, land, a landscaping contractor out of Dallas, and yeah. he had mentioned uh, two elm trees that were pretty sturdy because he had said um, some of them were dying, but there were a different species. Uh, right. Do you remember uh, or can you uh, suggest uh, the brand of or species type that I could plant here in San you, you Antonio? Hear in, in San Antonio, your best elm is going to be a cedar elm. 
I believe, botanically, okay. almost crassifolia or something like that. But cedar elm is the one that uh, that does very well here. In Dallas, they use some Drake's elms, and they use a couple of others. But uh, for San Antonio and the Hill Country, the cedar elm, it's a moderately fast-growing elm, uh, long-lived. It can easily live 100 years and really has doesn't have any problems. It has some little nuisance issues. Every now and then, uh, squirrels just decide they're going to go cut the tips off the branches, and nobody really knows why they do it. But they are not susceptible to any particular disease or problems. Once they're established, they're pretty close to being as drought-resistant as most of the oak trees are. So uh, I've got cedar elms in my yard, and I recommend them highly, and that's what I'd suggest to you. Okay, thank you so much for for your information. I really appreciate it, and uh, they have wonderful, beautiful colors in the fall, and it's uh, <laughs> it, it yeah. makes the whole yard look gorgeous. So, oh yeah, um, I want to go ahead and uh, anybody here that uh, I could get some from do you, that you might know. Any good nursery is going to have them. Any good nursery, good. And, and we're moving into the best season of the year for planting them. Uh, uh, September, October, November, those are the, the best three months to plant them. So get out and, you know, shop, find yourself some nice trees, dig a square hole, of course, and uh, make sure that root flare is right at the surface of the soil. But people always ask me when the best time to plant a tree is, and I tell them five years ago. But the second best time is today. So whenever you've got the time and energy, get your trees and get them planted. Well, I'm off for Labor Day, so I'll probably go out looking tomorrow. I really appreciate your information. And well, let a wonderful day. You, you, yeah, uh, you might want to go out and look this afternoon because many of your better independent nurseries do close for Labor Day. So tomorrow might be a good day to dig the holes, but it may not be the best day to shop. So uh, if you're going to go looking for trees, I would do it. Most most good nurseries are open on Sunday, but most of them are going to close tomorrow. So don't want you to be disappointed. You can uh, you can dig your holes tomorrow and buy the trees Tuesday, or you can get out and find some this afternoon. You do whatever works best for you, sir. There you go. Thank you so much for the help. I really appreciate it. Have yourself a wonderful Labor Day there. Yeah, thank you, sir. And you do the same. All right. Thank you. Let's see. It's my pleasure. Let's uh, get a little break in here, and then Woody will be up next. Oh, boy, I get to talk talk about another great man, and that is Dr. Mark Williamson. He, gosh, I've known for known him for quite a few years. He, when he went to work with Doctor Staffel, Doctor Staffel was really picky about he chose who he chose to expand and carry on his practice. And sadly, we lost Ed a lot sooner than we uh, we expected to. But Doctor Williamson stepped in, and he is every bit the same great dentist and guy that can just do anything and everything. Modern dentist uh, kids just coming out of dental school these days, you know, they're taught that well. If is anything more than a cavity or cleaning, you ought to farm it out to a specialist. That's not the way Dr. Williamson works. He can handle virtually any problem you have right there in his office, and that's going to save you money and save you a lot of hassle. Plus, it's just a totally different experience. You are not just a number. You are a friend. You are a person. He wants to know you and your family. He wants to understand your 
health and your oral health so that he can improve both. And good oral health can add many years to your life. So you're dealing with a really good man and a very competent and capable dentist when you visit with Dr. Mark Williamson. He's uh, located really easy to find. He's out in northwest San Antonio, just outside of Loop 410. Uh, They're on Cherry Ridge. I think they call that Conroy Square. But uh, if you've been looking for a good dentist, if you want somebody that can really take good care of you and your family, I'd recommend you get in touch with them. The number is 210-341-2569. Know that number by heart. 341-2569 for Dr. Williamson and Associates. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It's going to be Dwayne and Michael and Steve and Lydia. Dwayne is up first. Good morning, Dwayne. Good morning. How are you today? Uh, it's a beautiful morning, and I'm off to a good start. Bless the Lord for the rain. We need it. Amen, brother. Amen. It uh, it varied. I got half an inch. My business partner got about three quarters of an inch. We live out in the hill country. But, man, when I was heading home from work yesterday, that little quadrant out there in the northwest I-10-410 area, it's been it's been years since I've seen the water come down that hard. You can barely see one white line on the road in front of you. And uh, we have a couple of employees that live out in that way. And both of them got uh, over two inches of rain. So if you're under the right cloud, you got soaked, and just about everybody got at least a, a good light rain out of it. So wonderful day. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, question: I'm doing a little project out here in Hondo, and there's some oak trees that had died years ago from oak wilt okay they're probably 30 feet tall maybe 25 feet tall we've cut them back to where the ends of the branches the smallest ones are probably six inches diameter Uh and most all of the bark has fallen off already right i want to plant something that evergreen and flowering that will will grow up all of those trees Mm -hmm. and make a little more you know Aesthetically. <laughs> Aesthetically pleasing. Let me ask yeah. you this. Are are you more interested in having a spectacular summer show pretty much all summer long, or do you want something that's going to be green year-round, even if it only blooms for a relatively short time during the year? You're looking for evergreen, or uh, is it okay to have something deciduous if it just blooms its head off for a long time? Definitely evergreen is the most important. We were kind of thinking like maybe some kind of ivy and wisteria mix. I don't know if that would go together or not. Well, of course, ivy is just a generic term for a vine. And um, the problem with wisteria is beautiful for three weeks out of the year, and it is not evergreen. Wisteria, there is a form they call evergreen wisteria, but it's not really a wisteria, and it grows a lot better in Houston than it does in Hondo. Um, If you're looking for evergreen, the two best flowering vines that you could look for, uh, one of them is called Tangerine Beauty Cross Vine, C-R-O-S-S Cross Vine. Uh, Bignonia is its botanical name, if I remember right. And it blooms heavily in the spring with sort of a tangerine-colored flower. And then it blooms occasionally through the summer. But it's evergreen, it's cold-hardy, it's fast-growing. Tangerine Beauty Cross Vine is a good choice. Um, Confederate jasmine, also known as star jasmine, 
will also grow beautifully in Hondo. It has a, about a three-week bloom period in the spring, really dark green foliage, and when it blooms, it has white flowers that are fragrant. You know, I mean, you'll smell them from a block away. They are so sweetly scented, and uh, they that would be another very good evergreen flowering vine. Now, if you've got a number of these trees, you might put the evergreen vine on some of them, but uh, I would also consider, and there's a lot of it, uh, you know, a lot of these things over toward Castorville and on out toward Hondo, but there is a plant, uh, and botanically it's called Antigonon, it's called Coral Vine, it's called Rosa Montana, it's called Queen's Crown, goes by a lot of different names, and it freezes to the ground in the winter months, but it comes out in early spring, it starts blooming, if you get the good variety, it starts blooming about the 1st of May, and it will be in bloom all the way up till freezing weather. Brilliant pink flowers, and if you're driving around and you look over and you see, you see a vine that's just covered with flowers, that's what you're looking at. And uh, I just don't know of anything that gives you such an intense uh, show of flowers, but like I say, it does go away in the winter. There is another summer flowering vine, which is, I mean, this, this grows, uh, you just wouldn't believe how fast it grows, but it's called Rangoon Creeper, like Burma, Rangoon Creeper. And it freezes to the ground, but when it starts coming out in the spring, it'll be the top of an eight-foot trellis in two weeks' time. And it blooms with big clusters of a uh, almost a maroon-colored flower, also very highly fragrant, and it will bloom all the way up until freezing weather. So I've told you about four good vines. The Tangerine Beauty Cross Vine and the Star Jasmine are evergreen and give you flowers for a shorter period. Um, the Queen's Crown and the Rangoon Creeper both freeze to the ground, but regrow quickly in the spring and give you flowers pretty much all summer long. So I would; those are the four that I would I would look at first. Now there's some others. There's some uh, uh, passion vines that are interesting. There is another one that's called butterfly vine, blooms with yellow flowers, and then it has a little seed pod that looks very much like a green butterfly. Real unusual and different, and. Uh, um, not quite as showy flowers, but very definitely pretty, pretty yellow flowers. So you might look at uh, butterfly vine, uh, Mascagnia is its botanical name. And uh, if you want to start just a little botanical garden of flowering vines, uh, you can put that on one of your trees. It needs to look a little better. And it's evergreen in a mild winter, will be uh, deciduous in a cold winter. Can you mix any of these together to, to I, have... I don't know that I would mix them on the same tree because all of these things are pretty vigorous and I, you know, you wouldn't really want them trying to fight it out, I don't think. But if you've got, if you've got five trees that need to, you know, have a little dressing up, I'd, I'd plant a different vine on every one of them and uh, I'll guarantee you'll turn heads as people drive by. All righty, we'll, uh, we'll look into these then. And sure you... Well, it's always a pleasure. You call me anytime I can I can help. I can't come out and plant the plants for you, but I'd sure love to share the information about them. So uh, you uh, you enjoy your Labor Day, Dwayne. Look forward to visiting again. Thank you. Thank you, Thank sir. You. Certainly. Bye. All right. Michael's up next. Good morning, Michael. Hey, good morning, Bob. This morning, is a quick, sir. Uh, question, kind of uh, uh, not a vining question, but um, we do a lot of walking at Hardburger Park. Uh-huh. And I noticed yesterday there were two different plants. I don't know what they are, and I'll see how good I can identify them for you. Then maybe you can figure out what they are. Um, they're bushes, 
Okay. The first one uh, is about uh, they're they're blooming. These were the first one were intentionally planted out there, I think, because of the way they're located with sidewalks and all that kind of stuff. And uh, some are more in blooming than others, but they're all getting ready to burst out into blooms. And very tiny little green leaves, the color of the flower is like a lavender. And uh, if you put your nose right into the flower, you can get a little bit of a hint of a a nice aroma uh, of uh, fragrance. Um, and the honeybees love them. I mean, they were covered with honeybees yesterday. I mean, almost all over the place. Anyway, first of all, any idea of what that might be? What, the largest plant I saw was about four to five feet tall, about four to five feet wide. Plant right next to it hadn't bloomed as much. Uh, mm-hmm. But there are the little bitty tiny green leaves on these plants. Okay. Um, and, and the flowers were lavender to orchid in color? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. It could be one of the many varieties of what they call purple sage. Are the leaves mm-hmm. slick and shiny, or are the leaves uh, a little bit fuzzy? Uh, they look slick and shiny, I'd say. Okay. You could also look at abelia, A-B-E-L-I-A, um, mm-hmm. is another one. Uh, most of the abelias are white, but there are some of them out there that... Uh, you know that have a a pink. I wouldn't. I don't know of any of them that are really going to be a dark purple in color, but um, mm-hmm. those are two possibilities. There's a third one called Barbados cherry, which um, would be a distinct possibility. And and the flowers and leaves are both small. Uh, yeah, they are. Okay. They are. Those those are the ones. Um, that would first come to mind. Uh, by all means, next time you walk out there, and you sound like somebody that really enjoys walking, and the weather's only going to get better for that. But uh, take a good right. picture of them and uh, swing by a good nursery and uh, and and see, or, or the botanical garden, and we can probably tell you for sure with a close look at it. But um, uh, lower growing, there's a plant called pigeonberry that uh, is, at least in my landscape, is starting to come into bloom. It's late blooming this year, but it's because we were so dry this summer. And it has uh, has beautiful little pink flowers and then forms a, a berry that turns red. But, gosh, mine are rarely more than about 18 inches tall, and this sounds like it's, uh, like it's somewhat bigger. So... Um, those are the ones that I would that I would look up. If you've got a good native book or even one of the better wildflower books, uh, there are two or three good ones out there. A lady named Gaeta Agilas wrote one. Uh, the other wildflowers of Texas, uh, Marshall Inquist, if I'm remembering right, is the name of the author on that one. And both of those should be on your bookshelf uh, as much walking as you do. But uh, that is where I would go to try to identify them uh, if this doesn't work out. Yeah, there's also an app out there. I've never used it. I don't know what you think about it. That supposedly you can take a picture using the app and it'll identify it. But I, I've never tried that yet. So it's it's probably. I think it's about eighty five percent accurate. Um, it is interesting in how they do it. I mean, these apps are amazing. There's one out there for bird calls, and you can hold your phone up and just this distant voice, and you look down at it, and it will tell you very accurately what birds you're hearing. Uh, but the ones on the flowers are better on cultivated plants than they are on wildflowers, but they're 85% accurate, and I think it's a free app, so that would be a great thing to try. Well, very good. There's one more quick question, an identifying plant, one more plant, hardburger. This one is probably a wild-growing plant because of where they're located along the path. I don't think uh-huh. anybody put these in there. 
And and this one doesn't look like much of a plant. I mean, it's a bush, and, and they get to be maybe four or five feet tall, and they're kind of broad, and the, and, and the, uh, the parts of the plant aren't that impressive. It has a little white blossom on it, but you know you're coming up on the plant because the fragrant reaches out to you before you ever get to the plant. And it's a, a super fragrant, sweet, sweet smell. It probably is kidney wood. I can't say the botanical name of that one. Kidney wood would be one choice. And there's another, actually the growth is pretty similar on it, that is called sweet almond verbena. And sweet almond verbena is not nearly as common in the wild. But uh, unless you were looking at them side by side, they're easily confused. But the sweet almond verbena is by far the most fragrant. You, you would identify it from a long way away. But um, mm-hmm. in, in the area in Harburger Park, I think you'd be more likely to be looking at kidney wood. And both of those, you know, are, are coming into bloom. So uh, check them out. I can't really tell you a distinguishing characteristic. Uh, the, uh, the sweet almond verbena has a slightly rougher leaf. But look up both of those. I, my guess is sweet almond verbena. But I, as far as just growing out in the wild, uh, the kidney wood would be a more likely candidate. So I, I almost promise you it's one or the other of those two. And, and while I know that nurseries do sell the verbena sometimes, do they, do they, does anyone sell this kidney wood product? Yes, uh, any anyone who deals in uh, natives probably has them. Um, uh, we usually have at least a few of them. There's uh, a couple of good native nurseries up in Austin. You can check Fanix. Fanix has got bigger space and has uh, you know a pretty wide range of plants. But uh, the the sweet almond verbena is totally different than the little ground cover verbenas, both the native and the other. It, it makes a big bush. Uh, uh, usually freezes down, but usually comes back out again. We had one for many years here at the nursery, probably six, eight feet tall. And unfortunately, the freeze of 2020 got it. But um, uh, great plants, a uh, very, very excellent landscape plant. All right. Well, listen, I appreciate that. And I'll do what I can to see if I can't locate some of these and uh, appreciate all your information as usual. Well, it's always a pleasure. You get out and enjoy. Uh, uh, one of the things that I, I like most about Harburger Park, uh, it, it's, you know, it's an absolute great place for hiking as long as you watch out for rattlesnakes. But uh, it's just such a tribute to uh, Phil and Linda Harburger, who were just some of the finest leaders. Uh, they're still great people, but uh, they're, they're, Linda did so much with Green Spaces Alliance. And of course, Phil was one of the best mayors we've had in many years. So uh, I think highly of those two wonderful people whenever I'm driving by or walking through Hardburger Park. So uh, a lot of good things to say about it. So uh, you keep it enjoying and you call anytime we can help. Will do. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. My next two callers are going to be Steve and Lydia, and then it'll be Larry and uh, Chalk Pass. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, we start with Steve and Lydia. It's good morning, Steve. Good morning. Morning, sir. Uh, my wife has a wisteria in a pot that uh-huh. she put in the yard years ago okay and the roots have grown through the bottom of the pot right she wants she wants me to move it so can i move it and when should i move it okay time of year um 
and how are those roots the size of your little finger, the size of your thumb? How how big are those roots? Well, the pot is like big, and I can't I can't move it off the ground to see how big the roots are that went through the bottom. Okay. But it's a fair size wisteria. It's going to set it back substantially. Um, that plant probably has more of its absorptive root surface is in the ground under the pot than is in the pot proper. So if you can avoid doing it, it would uh, ask her how important it is to to move that pot because uh, this is this is going to be a, a real severe shock to it. So um, and especially has it has it been sitting there rooting through into the soil for several years? Oh, yeah, probably 10 years at least. Okay, yeah. I, if at all possible, I would avoid trying to move it. Uh, it's just you're, you're going to okay. find, I would guess, that probably 80% of that plant's root system is in the soil under the pot. In fact, uh, is this a really nice, fancy pot that it's in? No, it, it's not. Okay, if, if, if she decides that it just has to be moved, uh, I would take a hammer or you know whatever's appropriate and break the pot, break the pot off of it, and then dig and transplant it just as you would if you were moving a shrub or a small tree or something like that, bald and burlap. But I I would not sever the portion of it that's in the ground. If it has to be moved, get the pot out of the way and then dig a, a reasonable root ball, get as much of the root system as you can, and you'll certainly be able to move it successfully. But if you just tip that pot up and stem off what's coming out the hole in the bottom gonna be real hard on the plant and you might very well lose it so those are your two options either either leave it alone or you know treat it like a a tree or a shrub get the pot out of the way and then just dig a root ball and and move it like you would anything else well i i vote for just leaving it alone i vote for just leaving it alone too and uh (laughs) but on the other hand we're dealing with a lady here and you know there there are two ways to do it uh her way is her way or or both of those ways so (laughs) i understand these things believe me but uh um I'd, i'd talk her out of it if at all possible well she wants it to grow on the fence so i'll just Get another plant and start. There you go. Go go on. buy her. A, go buy her another one, and uh, and I think that'll be a far better plan. All right. Well, thank you much for your time, sir. You're very welcome, Steve. I appreciate the call. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye bye. All right. Next up is Lydia. Good morning, Lydia. Morning, Sunday. Good morning. Uh, this month, this non-gardener has a question, and uh, what's next? I've gathered some produce, red bell pepper seeds. Uh-huh. I've not had much rain, but the rain that I did receive yesterday, the pot plant that's 12 inches diameter went uh-huh. nuts. What's next? I have excessive amount of little leaves. Excessive. Okay, so the, the plant's growing well. Um, are you trying to get it to produce more Peppers? Are you trying to start new peppers? What are we trying to accomplish here? All that you mentioned. Okay. Um, well, this is not really the time of year to be growing peppers from seed because we're getting ready to move into the you know colder months of the year, and there's not really enough time to start a seed, get a nice transplant, and then get a plant that's up to uh, producing size. So if you want to collect 
some of the seed from, you know, a ripe ripe peppers you just you know slap them open scrape the seed out i put it on a you could use wax paper i usually use parchment let those seeds dry for about 24 hours and then put them in an envelope put that envelope inside of a mason jar or something that you can seal up and then just put them in the refrigerator for the winter not in the freezer but in the refrigerator and then about february or so you'll be able to start some nice plants to grow for next year in the meantime uh the pet plant that you have to encourage you to grow and produce all the way up till freezing weather i would get uh, good liquid plant food like has to grow by medina has to grow plant and i'd be feeding the plant about every two weeks it should bloom it should produce peppers um, I don't know what the variety of pepper is. Most peppers start out green and then turn red as they ripen. Uh, but you have lots of time to get lots of peppers off that plant between now and uh, freezing weather. So uh, just fertilizer, good light, uh, water thoroughly when it's dry on the surface. And we're moving into a very, very good time of year for pepper production. Just It's just too late to start n- new plants from seed. Uh, but you can certainly get an abundance of peppers off of that thing between now and December. Excited to hear that, and I will do it. And they were red. <laughs> yes, ma'am. They There are, uh, again, all peppers, uh, all bells especially, but also hot peppers too, pretty much turn red when they mature. But uh, these red bells, like you see in the grocery store, they, they start out and they turn red fairly early on in the growing process. So um, it, they're beautiful things. Now, the thing about growing from seed, you don't know what pollinated what out there. So when you grow your seed next spring, some of them may come out red, some of them may come out yellow, some of them may come out green. It's kind of like... Uh, you know, ra- raising puppies. If you don't know who the father was, <laughs> you may get quite an assortment of uh, offspring. And the same way is going to be true with your peppers. But they should all be good peppers. And if you start a dozen plants or so, you'll probably get an, an assortment of colors, which is always fun. Yes, I agree. Thank you so much. It is my pleasure. You get out and enjoy a great Labor Day weekend, Lydia. Appreciate the call. Thank, Thank you. you. My pleasure. My pleasure. All right. Got to get a break in here. Larry and John will be my next two callers. And uh, I get to talk about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems once again. And uh, just what a great company. Years ago, I, you know, just I'd, I'd gotten to know them. And I've got a big old house. I live in a house that's over 100 years old, three chimneys, balcony around, three sides upstairs. And this was not a this was not an easy roofing job, but man, Southwest Metal Roofing Systems did it. They did it quickly. They did it efficiently, flashing around three chimneys. I've not called them once. Never had a single problem with my roof. It looks as good as the day that they put it on. And of course, uh, we had roofing regrets, you might say, here at the nursery. Before we knew about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, we paid a lot of money for a metal roof from a different contractor. And oh, they gave us a good guarantee and all, but then when the roof rusted, out after about three or four years uh, they didn't win stand behind their warranty well thank goodness by that time we knew about southwest metal roofing systems they came out and put a new roof on just as reasonably priced as the first one was and it's been a beautiful roof ever since
ever since. So many of our friends, so many of our co-workers have put Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roofs on their homes. You even heard my caller this morning singing their praises about the roof they put on his home. They're just a great company. They give you the best warranty in the industry because you never have to come out and fix anything. You've got a lot of choices in color. You've got a lot of choices in style. You just need to give them a call and find out what all your options are. And if you're doing new construction, they do new homes as well as existing homes. So why not put on the last roof you'll ever put on that home to begin with? The company is Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, and you will love their work. The number 210-822-6868 is 210-822-6868 for Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening, and uh, looks like the next three callers going to be John and Larry and Mike. John's up first. Good morning, John. Good morning, Bob. Morning, uh, sir. I've got a question. I've got uh, white mealy bugs on my okra. Yes, sir. And especially the especially the burgundies. Uh huh. I, mean, it's, it's, I went away for a few days, come back, and basically just covered in white almost well let me let me let me slow you down at first when if you run your finger up and down around that cottony area do you see something move um well and and the reason i say that is rarely on okra do you see mealybugs but there is a something called a leaf hopper which is very very common on okra and if you were to run your finger up and down the stem, it will look like a little piece of that cotton just kind of jumps and goes a different direction. And the good news is that the leaf hopper is totally non-damaging. I mean, it looks terrible, but uh, they're harmless little things, and they look exactly like the mealybugs. Now, if if you run your hand up and down it and you get kind of a squishy liquid, uh, then that would be mealybugs, and you probably would want to spray with spinosad soap would be the safe thing to control them with. But I can't say I've ever seen mealybug on okra, and I see the little leaf hoppers almost every year. So check it out and be sure that we know exactly which problem it is because if it's the leaf hoppers it's nothing to worry about well these i mean when you rub the finger up and down it just falls off just like it was a a a piece of um, yeah cotton cotton or something you, when you rub your finger it just drops off yeah um i i think it, you're looking yeah i think you're looking at leaf hoppers john or larry and they uh they are nothing to worry about Okay, because the plants that they're on are are really the leaves are uh, turning uh, black, and the the okra gets real soft and mushy. And uh, well, if you want to if you want to be safe, uh, go ahead and spray with the spinosad soap. But um, uh, okra is dropping lots of leaves right now. Anyway, it's just late summer, and that's what okra does. But uh, the the uh, okra pods should still be pretty good, but uh, just to be on the safe side, get some spinosad soap, and either morning or evening, whichever is most convenient for you, just not during the hot part of the day, uh, spray with that, and uh, you'll control it very safely and still be able to eat the okra without any problem. Okay, let me ask you one other thing, because on the, on the, they're in a raised bed, uh-huh. and the soil is four inches below the top of the bed, and this, these white things are all along on the planter itself, on the wall of the planter. 
If if you run your finger over it, does it is it kind of squishy and gooey like you're squashing a bug, or is it just all dry and falls off? No, yeah, no. It well, I mean, if you press on it, it's squishy. Okay, then you may have mealybugs, but the uh, the spinosad soap would certainly take care of it for you. Okay, let me ask you: Is, is there anything I can do to the? Uh, I mean, will they survive in the soil when I pull the plants? If no, if I, no, if it's. They, they've they just had a good year because it has been so hot and so dry. No reason to worry about treating the soil. You can plant right in the same area. And uh, like I say, mealybugs are very uncommon outside, and we've seen more of it this year. I think it has to do with the hot weather and the fact that probably their natural predators have probably been you know, largely suppressed by the weather. But, no, you don't need to do anything to the soil. Just uh, get what's on there off so that you can still enjoy a couple of months of picking okra. But uh, they're they're not likely to be there next year. All right. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. You have a great day. You do the same, sir. I appreciate the call this morning. Let's go ahead and get started with uh, Larry. If we have to hold you through the news break, we'll do it. Good morning, Larry. Good morning, Bob. Good I'm morning. calling about uh, fire ants. Uh, uh-huh. I need to mow my lawn, and I'd like to kill them off first. Is, can you, is there a mound drench that would work for this? There is a good mound drench that will work very well. Uh, there is one made by Nature's Creation, which is actually called mound drench. Or if you want to make your own, you can put about uh, two ounces of uh, orange oil in about two gallons of water, and you can make your own mound drench, and in both cases, uh, you'll kill the ants almost instantly. Now, there are going to be a lot more mounds sprout up, because when we have a long period of dry and then we get some rain, uh, they decide, oh, this is time to reproduce, and they start making queens, uh, and they fly around and start more mounds. So you may want to follow it up with some of the bait called Come and Get It. Uh, doesn't work overnight, but that will get rid of a lot of the ones that are flying around thinking about starting new mounds. But where you know the mounds are, make your own mound drench or by nature's creation mound drench and give them a good soaking and they'll die overnight. Well, great, Bob. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be using plenty of that. i got some dry that I'll okay. use later on. Larry, I tell you I what, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get Greg to put you on hold if you want to talk a little further, but I've got to go to news because top of the hour. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. Don't dial right this second, though, because it looks like Mike and Gary and David and Rita all got in front of you, but we'll have a line available for you pretty shortly because we'll go right straight to the phone lines and say good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Uh... Well, first of all, we're having some incredible, beautiful rain down here. Ah, so glad to hear it. So glad to hear it. Uh, Finally, uh, I was reading in the paper that the the Rio Grande rose by two feet. Oh, I hear hear Amistad's uh, up five or six feet, and... uh, uh, Falcons getting gotten some good rises on it too. So, been a long time coming, but uh, always welcome. Oh yes, I uh, just got uh, one question here. I have some mountain laurels. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Curious as to uh, how tall do they actually get? Because I got one that's really tall, and the other one <laughs> they were all planted at the same time. But uh-huh. there's one that's uh, there's one that's really lagging behind. But I was just curious at that. The one that I have that 
looks like it's eight feet tall if it's going to keep going, especially with all this rain. I I see them around this area, Mike. They're up to twenty feet tall. Now they are a they're they're a brittle wood, and a lot of times Mother Nature takes the top out of them when they get you know up much over eight feet tall or so. And of course, uh, uh, I sincerely hope we don't have to deal with an ice storm this winter. But a lot of them, they're, they're just a lot of things that keep them from reaching their potential maximum height and you can top them if you want to if you don't want one that uh you know gets just enormous but when i drive around some of the old sections of town here i I see them that are 15 or 20 feet tall average probably 8 to 10 at maturity but uh if you don't want to let them get that big you're going to have to exercise a little judicious use of the pruning shears or chainsaws shall we say Okay, uh, but you know, with all this rain, I says, I wonder if these are going to take off on me. Like, um, <laughs> well, in the sense of you know what a pittosporum or xylosma or something would do. No, mountain laurels don't take off. They're when when they grow quickly. Even that's going to be that's like expecting to, a turtle to win a, a foot race. No, it it may move along, but it's it's not going to explode in that action. So. Uh, um, but if if it is getting bigger than you want, don't. What I would do is wait till after it blooms in the spring, so you don't sacrifice any of the beautiful fragrant flowers. But uh, okay, great. Uh, you know, you you can always trim to shape. Just uh, of course, don't ever remove more than about thirty percent of the leaves at any one time. But sure. you know, sure. you've heard me say many times, mountain laurels are difficult to transplant. And chances are, when yours got planted, one of them's roots just got jostled around a little bit more than the other, and it's just been a little bit slower to take off. But uh, they are excellent plants, and uh, once established, they live a long time. Uh, the other one that impressed the heck out of me with this rain uh, is my crepe myrtle. Uh, it was uh-huh. pretty sad. And, and uh, let me tell you, uh, all of a sudden, uh, it started sprouting uh, <laughs> some green leaves. Uh, and if it could so, talk, uh, it would say, finally. Exactly. But, uh, yep. All right, uh, Bob, uh, I appreciate you and uh, your show. Well, always a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, let's hope that was this wasn't a unique event. We'll hope the rains continue down south as well as in our part of the state. So uh, always good to hear from you, Mike. And at this point, we'll move on and talk to Gary. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Bob. Uh, how morning, are you this sir. morning? Oh, it's going to be a beautiful day out there. I'm off to a good start. Great. Um, question about uh, a couple of red oak trees I've got. Um, I've got two of them. One is rather large, and the other one is smaller than that, and they're about 20 feet apart. Okay. But both of them have all their leaves have turned brown. Now, the little one has turned brown long before the middle of the summer and the bark now is starting to peel off the squirrels are getting it and eating on it there's a green powder now on the bark the other tree which is the biggest tree that i have uh maybe 40 feet tall individual branches all the leaves were turning brown and now about 60 percent of the tree has brown leaves and uh, my my local forest service guy has been out to look at it. He's calling it bacterial leaf scorch, mm-hmm. and says the red oaks are 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 affected by that. But I'm curious, what is it I can do to make sure this tree is going to come back 
in the spring. Well, the smaller one, uh, does, it sounds like it's dead to me. If the bark is coming off that one, um, I, I'm just glad he didn't tell you it was oak wilt. And I was going to ask you how quickly this occurred because uh, red oaks, if red oaks get oak wilt, they are dead within two weeks. But this is most likely some other problem, probably drought-related. But um, I, I, I see bacterial leaf scorch, but it's usually on a stressed tree. And believe it or not, even the even the red oaks have been you know, stressed with the kind of drought we've had this summer. Now, the worst thing that you can do is overdo it with water. It would be good if you can turn the hose on slowly, if you didn't get good range yesterday. If about every two to three weeks you could give it just a very, very thorough watering. If you uh, go to Howard Garrett's website uh, and look at what he calls sick tree treatment, um, the things he recommends on there are good for healthy trees as well as sick trees. But uh, as long as you don't kill it with kindness, as long as you don't just drown it, that bigger red oak, I would expect it to come out fine next spring. The fact that it's just got brown leaves here and there, um, hopefully the brown leaves will just drop off. It's a bad sign when leaves turn brown and stay attached on the tree. And uh, and that's what happened, you know, to your smaller one. But at, at this point, check to be sure the root flare is exposed. Uh, it would almost certainly benefit from treating with garret juice, perhaps some green sand, uh, perhaps even some cornmeal around. But uh, I've, I've got red oaks all over my ranch, and I see some of them suffering from the drought, but I'm not seeing... I'm not seeing much bacterial leaf scorch, so, uh, um, but again, if the tree is still 30% leafed out and if the leaves go pretty much to the tip of the branches, I would expect, since we are getting back into having at least occasional rain, I suspect that tree will come out just fine. I, I'm seeing that around my own ranch, and the, they look bad. The red oaks look bad. I had one of them that just snapped off about 18 inches above the ground, a tree that was close to two feet in diameter, and we saw some of that during the summer. But um, the ones that are just partially defoliated, I, I, I fully expect them to come out next spring. And unfortunately, uh, other than maybe a little garret juice, maybe a little bit mulch, making certain that the root flares are exposed, those are about all you can do for them at this point. Okay, and you said the website and product again was what? It's uh, dirtdoctor.com. And look and read about what uh, Howard calls sick tree treatment. It's going to tell you about the garret juice, about probably some green sand, some lava sand, some very basic things that will help any tree, whether it's sick or not. But, um, I, I, again, if we, if we go back to being very drought-like, I'd probably be given, trying to give this tree a good thorough watering every six weeks or so. But at this point, I, I think it's going to be mainly wait and see. But I'm pretty feel pretty certain this tree will come out and do fine for you. Okay, and you said something about if the leaves are still attached. Well, the leaves are all still attached. They're all brown on, you know, more than half of the branches. Yeah, but if this is just scattered through the tree, then uh, I'm not nearly as concerned. If the whole tree, entire tree, just turned brown very suddenly and the leaves stayed attached, then 
then you're looking at something that probably has has killed the tree. It just hasn't, uh, you know, hadn't spread throughout the tree yet. But if it is indeed bacterial leaf scorch, this is something the tree can certainly recover from. And if uh, if 30, 40 percent of the tree still has reasonably good foliage on it, uh, I think there's a good chance it's going to come out okay for you. Okay, great, Bob. Thank you so much for your help, and have a great weekend. You do the same, and don't plant any more red oaks. If you're going to plant oak trees, plant no. bur oaks, plant lacy oaks, plant Monterey oaks. And if you just have to have a red oak, be sure that you don't get the schumard. The schumard, unfortunately, especially the box stores sell a lot of them. They're great trees in Seguin, but lousy trees in the hill country. So uh, uh, you would, if you just really wanted to plant a red oak, our good old native Hill Country Red Oak is the one to plant, but I still don't recommend it because they're susceptible to many problems. Yeah, I've only got an acre of property. I've got well over 100 trees already. I'm not planting anymore. (laughs) Very good. Well, you get out and have a great Labor Day. It's my pleasure. Thank you, sir. All right, uh, let's see here. I guess I better we better take a break here, Greg, and uh, then we'll we'll talk to uh, David and Rita when we come back. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Looks like the current lineup is David, Rita, Angie, and Diego. David is next. Good morning, David. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? Uh, it's going to be a great day. I'm, I'm looking forward to Labor Day. How about you? Oh, I guess. What the heck? <laughs> yeah. How can I help today? I've got a couple of questions for you. I, uh, I made some of that uh, uh, power garret uh, juice. Yeah, in the uh-huh. And it sat, there for about, it sat there for about two or three days. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you the smell. Well, anytime you... Yeah, you can still use it. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's one of those things that you really... that you, you shouldn't try to save. You should mix it up fresh. Um, you know, each time you make it where you're doing it at home. Now, they, uh, they put some things in kind of stabilize it, uh, when, when you buy it all pre-made. But even then, once you dilute it, you should use it up. But when you follow the recipe and make it yourself, no, go ahead and use it. Don't, uh, let's just say it will get highly aromatic if you don't. So, but it's still fine. Go ahead. Just, just use it soon. I didn't meant to leave it there. That's what happens when you have a busy life. I believe I understand, and I've been there. But uh, uh, do go ahead and use it up, because the smell's only going to get worse. Yes, sir. Can I feed them all year round, or how does that work? On roses, as far as feeding, um, yes, you can feed roses year-round. The roots will benefit from the fertilizer 12 months out of the year. And then, of course, uh, when they're in active growth spring and fall, they need feeding. But uh, I think it's a good a good uh, protocol to feed your roses pretty much. Uh, I'd feed them at least quarterly, uh, and I would do it year-round. I think David's phone probably gave out on him there. So, uh uh, it sounded like it was having problems. So let's move along and talk to Rita next. Good morning, Rita. Good good morning, Bob. Good morning. I think I have an easy question for you. <laughs> when do I put on my corn gluten meal? 
Okay, corn gluten meal, the important thing is to understand how corn gluten meal works. Uh, it's it, it's a good fertilizer anytime, but most people use it as what we call a pre-emergent herbicide, which literally means it kills things before they begin to really grow. Now, in the case of corn gluten meal, it allows a weed seed to sprout but then it keeps it from developing a root system so that that weed dies before it can really start growing unless we have a lot of rain in which case it just doesn't work the the question is always when is that weed seed going to begin to sprout and typically that's when the weather cools off and you know it starts to uh, we start to get a little bit more rainfall so in most cases, I'm going to say between the 1st and 15th of October, most years will be the time to put your corn gluten meal out. Now, it does get broken down. It gets eaten up by the microbes in the soil. So it's not something that you can put on and it's going to last and work all winter long. If, if, um, if the weather is kind of variable, you may have to put it out two or three times to totally really keep the weeds under control but uh, again you're always going to get fertilizer benefit but to use as a as an herbicide it needs to go on just before the weeds typically begin to sprout and that is usually early to mid-october so that's about as close as i can come we we have to do it pretty much by the weather rather than trying to do it by the calendar but um, and and it's never going to be a hundred percent effective. It's but it it is a good product. Like I say, you always get the fertilizer benefit, and usually get the weed control benefit as well. Good. That's just exactly what I needed to know. Thank you so much. Well, it's my pleasure, Rita. Thank you for the call this morning. And uh, next up is Angie. Good morning, Angie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I had a question about. When you plant ground cover or even just beans with the things that enrich the soil, with uh-huh. is that correct? Do you need to leave them in and mow them down or can just get the benefits the best? Or like what if you pull them up? Does it do anything? Well, it all depends on what kind of weeds or whatever you're you're really trying to control. Uh, pulling up tends to get root system and everything and things don't sprout back um, if you mow them down ground covers in in pretty much across the board are a little slow getting started in fact the old nurseryman saying is that first year they sleep the second year they creep the third year they leap so you're going to be working to control the weeds while your ground cover is really getting started so it's best to eliminate as many as possible before you plant them now uh, pulling is a lot of work in many cases many weeds can be killed by spraying with vinegar and orange oil some of the things you can use what we call a push-pull hoe which cuts the weed off just below ground level and pretty effective it's just a way to get them under control without having to bend over constantly it's a little bit easier on the back but when you're planting ground cover uh, it's best to get rid of as many of the weeds as possible before you put your ground cover plants out because uh, they're like I said they don't just explode into growth it takes time for them to really grow and fill in does that apply to things like, let's say you're planting vetch or buckwheat, things that you just want to enrich 
maybe during the winter does that apply? well those those would we would call cover crops and uh uh-huh. no most most of your weeds are going to uh at least freeze down whereas vetch and buckwheat are both things that we're planting for the cool season so uh in that case i probably would just mow them off as low to the ground as i could and then put my seed out for uh for vetch or buckwheat or clover or whatever you're planting as a winter cover crop so yeah, just mow them down's the best to get the. Okay, that's what I wanted to know. And depending on how big and thick those weeds are, <laughs> I gave mine a my yard a good thorough mowing, and in some places the the weeds had grown so thick that it literally left a, a you know a bunch of stuff on the surface of the soil. Uh, you want your seed that you're putting out to make good contact with the soil underneath. Yeah. So if you have a lot of volume of, you know, after you mow it down, it's best to just rake that off so the seed will get down. If it's just Bermuda grass or something and you've just, you know, got blades here and there on the ground, don't worry about it. Just throw your seed out and water and go. But if you're, Great. if you're leaving a lot of mulch on the surface, rake it off before you put uh, your seed out. Okay. That helps. Yeah. I help it. To come up well and what when i plant my bay leaf tree out does it need full sun or partial sun or the more the more sun uh the better it will grow and the better quality if you're going to use the leaves on your bay in cooking purposes yeah the more sun it gets the uh the the better more flavorful it will be and the better it will grow now bay trees are normally cold hardy most of them did freeze right. back in the big freeze of 2020 so if you have the choice of north side of your home or the south side of your home plant it on the south side so you'll at least get a little bit of protection for the next time we do get a really cold winter yeah my garden's on the south side so that's great well Good. thank you so much well, it is my pleasure. Thank you for the call this morning. Next time. I'll look forward to it. Thanks, Angie. All right. Um, tell you what, let's let's go ahead and get one more call in, Greg. Let's go ahead and talk to Diego. Good morning, Diego. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you for calling. I have a okay. question. Uh, it's amazing what rain does for plants compared to city water. <laughs> there's just a magic to rainwater, and there's a lot of talk and discussion about why rainwater is so special, but uh, I, I'm just going to sit back and enjoy all the good response and not try to figure it out too hard. Yeah, but it's, it's very good. Uh, my question is about a 20-year-old sago palm that I have in a, in, in a bed in the front yard. Uh-huh. It's been a great plant all this time. It, it, in both of these last big freezes, its leaves turned brown, but came they the leaves came back and it was very healthy until right. about two weeks ago we came back from a from a two-week vacation and all the leaves had just drooped down to the ground the leaves are still green but it looks like it's you know heading heading towards its last days um i i, I can't really explain it unless it's residual uh from the freeze well that's that would be highly unusual did it put out um you know a good fresh crop of fronds this spring or are these mainly fronds that were left over from last year no no they looked they looked very good they were very healthy very robust up, upright very green uh no insects you know my some of my sagos had um uh what insect problem do they get scale oh yeah scale. they get scale they get scale there's no scale on them and um on my, any of my sagos right now, the freeze actually killed the scale. 
in yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the silver lining in a dark cloud. Um, yeah. When you look right down in the center, right down in the crown, what does it look like? Does it look like kind of uh, distorted and unusual growth, or is it just sort of brown fuzzy uh, with just slight little protuberance like it usually has? Well, let me. Uh, <laughs> waiting ten seconds, and I'll step out there. Okay. Uh, the uh, the the center the center looks healthy. It looks it has small little spiky spikes mm-hmm. coming out of it, and okay. um, I mean, there's I don't see any anything necrotic or or or, or dead looking, rotten looking. Okay. It's just and the and the leaves that are pointing downwards instead of upwards now. If you take hold of one of those and give it a gentle tug, is it yeah, gonna? It I hope out. you've got gloves on. Is it gonna pull out or is it gonna stay attached? It pulls out easily. Okay. That's that's highly unusual, um, but that's not a good sign. And and how tall is the trunk trunk proper on it? Uh, oh, three feet. Three okay. Feet the bad news is that I think the crown's going to die out of that plant. I really can't tell you why. It, it's unusual for that to happen, but occasionally something will happen that you know just just destroys that that top part of it. Uh, the good news is that it's almost certainly going to sprout out from the base, and it's probably going to start out with, with four or five you know, new trunks coming up or new heads coming up. And so I, I would I would imagine overall the plant is going to survive. But um, that that one crown, it, it almost sounds like herbicide damage, like, you know, neighbors uh, got a little carried away or the city came along spraying or whatever else. Uh, and it's, you know, you haven't been there to watch and see what could have happened, but... Um, when 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 those fronds are just you know pull away from it, that indicates that it just literally is is rotting there in the top. And when that happens, usually the top doesn't come out again. But a sago that's three feet tall is probably going to develop uh, three to as many as six or eight shoots come out from lower on the plant. So um, it does put out pups, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, and hard, hard and to do a. Like, yeah, I'm sorry. I, actually, I'm, I'm I'm having to spread the leaves to see if I have some pups under there, and I do, and they look healthy. So yeah, weird. Yeah, it it's you know it's hard to do on a post mortem <laughs> over the telephone, <laughs> but but yeah. something something got into the crown of that plant, whether it was physical, whether it was chemical. Uh, whether it was, uh, and, and occasionally there's actually a big old beetle that sometimes gets in and really chews. The, the cro- if you did a cross-section of the trunk of a sago, it's totally different than a woody tree like an oak or a cedar elm, and consequently they, they don't have some of the problems, some of the diseases that other woody trees do, but oddly enough, they are susceptible to damage by the big old rhinoceros beetles and things like that. So at this point, I'd just be guessing to know what got to the crown, but if the newer growth down toward the base looks good, you're just going to have a very bushy sago instead of one with just a single trunk coming up at... uh, um, I'd, again, I'd, I'd just be guessing. If you want to call an arborist, you could call David Vaughn and get him to come by and take a look and see if he can determine exactly what 
caused the problem, but I am encouraged that the plant's going to continue to grow and thrive. It's just, it would be, it'd be a, a, out of curiosity, I'd love to know what it was that, you know, caused the problem on the top. But uh, the good news is that it's still alive and appears that it's going to come out just fine from the base, although that will be a bit slow. I know. I, I guess my major concern is that the other Sagos would, would start doing this because, you know, it's taken many years for them to, to, to grow to oh, their yeah. size. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's that's what makes them expensive is that they are so slow. If you, like say, if you wanted to, and, and you're welcome to take a good couple of pictures and bring them by or take them to a good nursery and uh, any anybody worth their salt would happily, uh, you know, take a look and see what they can diagnose. If you want to talk to a a professional, and this guy has nothing to sell you except a little bit of his time, uh, but his name is David Vaughn. He worked for, I think, the best Arbor Care company for many years. He got to a certain point, and he said, I don't have to work this hard anymore, so he just went in the consulting business, but uh, David's a good guy, knows his stuff, very reasonable on his charges, but uh, if you want to give him a call, uh, phone number is uh, air code 210-788-4986. And if you have other Sagos around just for your own peace of mind, it might be good to know what probably happened. But, again, Sagos are not disease-prone. They get some insect problems, but I can't say that I know of a single disease that would spread from plant to plant. I'd like to say you see some insect problems, see some root damage from uh, uh, beetles of various sorts, but if it would... uh, if it make you feel a little bit better, because again, you you don't want to be replacing bunches of sagos uh, because it's ty- it you know takes time for them to grow, and certainly they're pretty expensive because of the slow growth. But um, the one thing I would consider is giving David a call, and if you do so, I'd love to hear back from you what his diagnosis is. Okay, very good. All right. Well, thanks for uh, your consideration, and uh, yeah, we'll just see what happens. I, I think I will give him a call because, like I say, I'd hate to lose the other ones that are around yeah. it. Yeah, he's he's a uh, he's a good guy, and like I say, he's not going to sell you some super expensive treatment because he he doesn't do that. But um, uh, I would love to know, and sometimes it's just uh, take a couple of good pictures. At any rate, at this point, close up, and uh, if you're over this way, I'd love to take a look at it with you and see if there's anything additional I can tell you about it. All right, very good. Thanks a lot, Bob. Appreciate you're it. You're cer- certainly welcome, Diego. Appreciate the call. Right, certainly. All right, Greg, uh, Greg, let's uh, get our recordings done here and get back with some more phone calls. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It's going to be David and Skyler and Mike. David's up first. Good morning, David. We got cut off a while ago, right? I think your phone died out on you. Yes, sir. Yeah, man. Okay, my other question was, uh, I have about... Uh, 16 rose bushes, eight on each side of the sidewalk, and they look terrible. Uh huh. Feed them and, and perk them out, or how's that? What can I do with them? Yeah, you can feed them and you can cut them back a little bit to get some new growth. Labor Day is traditionally the time we cut our bush roses back in the fall. So absolutely feed them and, you know, don't don't prune them as heavily as you do around Valentine's Day. But uh, uh, cut them back by about a third, feed them, water them very, very thoroughly, and they should come out with beautiful new growth on them after these good rains. Okay. All right. I've got to find some of you now. Yeah. 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 I always use on them. 
Medina fertilizers are are really good on roses. So unfortunately, they don't do any good in the bagger bottle. So you got to get out there and put them out. But uh, that's not a very big job. And uh, Labor Day would be a good, real good time to do it. And like I say, don't cut them as far back as you do in the spring. We usually, and this is bush roses only. Now, climbers, we don't prune until spring. But bush roses, we generally cut back. Uh, one-third in the fall, two-thirds in the spring. So put on your gloves and get out there and give them a good pruning as well. Good. Very good. Very good. Thank you. Appreciate it. You have a My nice pleasure. Weekend. You do the same, David. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Next in line is Skyler. Good morning, Skyler. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing this morning? It's a nice morning out there, and I'm talking to you, so what more do I need? <laughs> Well, I've got a quick question for you. I just started doing a raised bed recently. Okay. Um, I'm about an hour south of San Antonio, so we've been getting a lot of rain. Lucky you. you know. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm thinking I may be suffering from some root rot because I'm not sure it's draining all the way. I've got some squash, um, some zucchini. I've got peppers in there and then cream peas and regular um, beans. But for some reason... My beans, they just started turning yellow and dropping leaves. And I looked at the stems, and they looked like they were a little moldy almost. Um, okay. Do you think that's what it would be, is root rot? Well, root rot is uh, is kind of a very broad general term. And mm-hmm. what happens, um, plants, water doesn't, doesn't kill plants. Uh, what happens is if the soil stays too wet, the water drives the oxygen out of the soil, and the plants literally die of suffocation. They they die of uh, lack of oxygen. It's just like I always jokingly tell people, if somebody stuck your head in a bucket of water, um, the water didn't kill you, the lack of oxygen killed you. And if your soil is so heavy that the water has driven the oxygen out of the soil, then the plants begin to die slowly for lack of oxygen and uh, all the slime and mold and all the other nasty-looking stuff that tends to grow. Uh, That's just because the plants didn't have enough oxygen and they just literally suffocated. So it's hard to say if you're you're down where your soil's sandier, and so typically... Uh, even though they they get you know very heavily watered, the water tends to move through fairly quickly. So it's unusual to have the soil stay so waterlogged that it's going to cause a problem. But that's not to say that it can't happen. It, uh, mm-hmm. it it's certainly a possibility. But uh, uh, your your beans beans are kind of the wimps of the vegetable garden, and I guess it is possible. On beans, I more often see a problem with insects like pill bugs chewing on the stems, and then you do start getting some deterioration. How do the uh, how do the squash, how do the cucumbers, how do your other plants look? Everything else looks great. It's just those beans for some reason. Everything else is doing great. Like I've already got blooms and everything on all the different squash plants, so that's yeah. why I was kind of confused by it. Yeah, I, I think you've got some bugs probably chewing on. Uh, the base of your bean plants. Uh, there's a product called Slug O Plus, and that takes care of sa- snails, slugs, and pill bugs. So uh, okay. I, I I think the deterioration is sort of after the fact, and rather than uh, you know the the cause of it, because uh, you're fortunate in that uh, you're in an area where your soils too tend to drain pretty well. 
And I, I, I doubt very much that uh, being waterlogged is a problem. I think you've probably been looking at an insect that's getting after your beans because your squashing cucumbers would be showing the same problems if it were indeed a problem of being waterlogged. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, the dirt that I'm using isn't from here, though. It is. I did get some from the um, New Earth over there in San Antonio. I got some okay. of their potting soil. Well, next time before you plant, work some lava sand or something like that in just to be sure you've got good drainage. Now, the good news is on bush beans at least, you can still plant another crop of beans. Uh, In fact, cooling off, you might even go back and plant some of my favorite bean, which for spring is called Tavera, T-A-V-E-R-A. It does like a little cooler temperature. Uh, You could also do contender or top crop. But these are beans which usually produce in less than 50 days. So if you plant them now, you'll be picking by mid to late October. So I wouldn't hesitate to plant more, but I'd sure put out some sluggo or something like that uh, just in case it is insects coming out at night and chewing on things. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Well, you're certainly welcome. And a uh, little bit of fertilizer, too, on those uh, on those squash and cucumbers because you, you ought to get a good crop on those things before uh, before the fall sets in. Yes, sir. Will do. All right, Skylar, thanks for the call, and uh, call me again. We'll look forward to it. And, uh, Greg, let's get our last break done and then probably finish the show up with Mike and Jan. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, let's get back to gardening. Uh, We'll certainly have time for Mike and Jan. Might be able to get one more call in here, but I can't promise. We'll just uh, get started and see how that goes. Good morning, Mike. Morning, Bob. Um, Morning, sir. I just had a couple couple, uh, quick comments and a couple quick questions. The first comment is I had a caller earlier talking about mealy bugs on his okra. Uh I actually have a couple okra plants in five-gallon buckets, and they both have been getting a lot of mealy bugs on them. Really? Yeah, they're definitely mealy bugs, but uh, and there's also a lot of fire ants on them. But I've been controlling yep. both with the spinosad, like you said. But the uh, the ants are harder to control. I have to spray almost every day for those. You might you might get some come and get it, or um, if oh, you make yeah. your orange oil, yeah, make your orange oil real dilute, maybe a tablespoon or maybe a teaspoon per gallon. And at that rate, you should be able to pour it through the pot without hurting the roots. You don't make it as strong as we do for drenching them out out in the yard, but if you just can't get them under control, um, dilute orange oil will most likely likely kill them. Uh, The come and get it gets them as well, but sometimes it takes a little longer. But, you know, it's it's unusual. I I do appreciate the confirmation on that, though, because we're seeing seeing mealybug on Altheas and things that I can't say I've ever seen mealybug on. It's just been one of those weird years. My suspicion is that between the cold and the heat, there's a little natural predator for mealybug. uh, It's called Cryptolemus, and it really normally controls them outside, but... My my guess is probably just that their populations got really set back. And uh, anyway, hopefully they bounce back quickly because mealybug are just nasty things. But uh, I I guess Althea's are not the only thing they're going after. They're going after okra too. And I I appreciate you letting me know. Yeah. Uh, the other comment was uh, I've heard you mention a few times the Great Freeze of 2020. That right. was actually February of 2021 with the uh, okay. snow yeah. and the power outages and all that. But um, anyway, the, the first question, um, 
is uh, there's a plant I've never heard anybody ask you about, and I've never heard of you talk about, but they sell it at a local nursery, and I, I want one, but I wanted to ask you about it first. It's called a, a natal plum or a natal plum. Yeah, yep. uh-huh. It's botanically. I just kind of wanted to. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Botanically, it is called Carissa, C-A-R-I-S-S-A, if you want to look it up. We are right on the northern edge of its uh, happiness zone, so to speak, and a a hard freeze will kill it. A hard freeze, well, a hard freeze will knock it back, a really cold freeze. Down to 25, you're going to get burned foliage. Below 20, it may very well die on you. So... Um, it, okay. it's a, I, I love the plant and if you, it's, uh, you see a lot of it down in coastal areas because it's very salt tolerant and, uh, in the areas that we don't normally get a freeze, it's, it's very widely used, uh, from Rockport all the way down to Brownsville. You'll see them has a very, very fragrant flower on it, uh, forms a, a little plum, uh, which I think is actually edible. I'm not sure. I've never tried to eat one. I think it is. And I, and I can tell you one one funny story. Uh, uh, a girl I knew well in college, her dad was a veterinarian down in the valley, lived on the golf course at McAllen, and he had a hedge of natal plum, you know, right, uh, one of the greens just backed up to his backyard, and he had this thick hedge, oh, probably 18 inches tall, and that's where Dr. Mack got all of his practice balls, because nobody that hit a golf ball into his hedge would dare to stick their arm in to try to get it back out, oh, yeah. because it is so, so thorny. But uh, your, your only limitation here is just that it, it will have trouble with a cold winter. Other than that, it's a great plant and a beautiful plant to grow here. Okay, do you think I could get away with putting it in a container, like a 15-gallon container? If you drag it inside when it gets real cold, raised up out of okay. the ground, it's going to be even more susceptible to freeze damage. And yeah. if, you're, if you're thinking about doing this, uh, uh, unless you can plan to bring it inside, I'd put off till spring planting it. It's getting awful late okay. to expect it to get well-established. But uh, um, okay. you obviously enjoy your gardening. You understand that gardening is it's just what i call it what i call agriculture is legalized gambling with worth's odds but uh yeah. spend spend ten dollars get a nice big plant of natal plum and and if it dies go out and get another one it's not the end of the world you're gonna you're gonna spend that much right. on lunch tomorrow probably okay thank you uh last question what does it mean when you say a plant has bolted it bolted it means it's gone to flower um, and bolting is typically a term applied to an annual plant. Now, obviously, perennials okay. flower almost, you know, off and on, either on a yearly basis or a constant basis. Shrubs, roses, things like that flower regularly. But with many annuals, they grow for a while, and then at the end of their normal life cycle, they bolt, which means they put on flowers, make seed, and they're done for. They're not going to come back after that. So, uh, in some okay. cases, it may be a biennial like parsley or like a blue bonnet, or it may be an annual like lettuce or various other things. But bolting just simply means uh, going to flower, and it's applied to plants which uh, basically only do this once in their life. So that's not a negative thing, then? That's a normal thing? That's a totally normal thing. Okay, um, okay. It's negative in that the plant's about to die on you. But uh, yeah. uh, on the other hand, it uh, is going to make seed, and you know many annuals will come back. But uh, bolting is typically brought on 
Uh, by hot weather, cool weather plants, uh, they normally the the heat will cause them to bolt and die in the spring. Um, in the case of uh, plants that grow through and into the cooler months, many times the fact that days get shorter and shorter is what induces bolting in them. But uh, it, it's okay. just putting on flower spikes and signaling the end of the, that particular plant's life cycle. Okay, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Thank you for the call. And, uh, yeah, we'll finish up the show today with uh, with Jan. Good morning, Jan. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I was, I was calling about, I have an a above-ground garden because uh-huh. we have too many rocks. And <laughs> know that weird. plan. Yeah, but it's just weird. Um, I used, um, oh, I used vegetable soil one time, and I used organic uh garden soil another time i've had it for a few years but uh-huh. when you uh, like all that rain we had yesterday and when you go out there i was out there pulling some weeds it's dry underneath the top so right. that's weird well had we gotten two inches of rain spread out over 12 hours it would be wet all the way through. The rain that I went through on the way home, very little of that soaked in because it was coming down so hard, uh, it ran off very, very quickly. Now, if uh, you know, if you had mulched it, with, say, with lava sand or something like that, that would loosen things up and allow the water to get into the soil a little bit better, uh, it might have watered more deeply. But yesterday's rain was pretty much worthless of, as far as really soaking the soil because it came quickly, it rained hard, it ran off, and uh, it just didn't soak the soil very deeply. So, uh, yes, it's a little unusual, uh, but I'm not surprised. Having having driven through that storm, uh, it, it was coming down so hard, it doesn't surprise me that probably 95% of it went down the creek instead of soaking into the ground. It seems like it does that, though, even just when I water. Um, you probably ought to put a good mulch on the surface. You might consider getting some lava sand or something like that because uh, soils can kind of crust over and keeping yeah. something something like a good mulch on top or, you know, if you want something more permanent, something like lava sand will very definitely increase the porosity of the soil and help more of the moisture get into the soil. Yeah, one time I put some green sand. Yeah, green sand. Green sand's a great iron supplement. Uh, lava sand's a little bit coarser and will actually help with the water infiltration a little bit more. Okay, thank you for your help today. <laughs> you are welcome. Thank you for calling.